Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Some time ago, I was, uh, had the privilege of having dinner with um, Dr. Walvard and his wife and uh, several others. And his wife told an interesting story about when he was a young man and um, Lewis Berry Schaefer had died. And John Walvard was preaching at a church and his widow was there and um, listened to him. And afterwards, she came up to him and she said, John, that was a very good sermon. But I guess the devil's already told you that. You see, we got the gospel right. And I think the devil's already told us that. So how are we going to say it? How are we going to hold it? What are we going to do with it? What's going to be our, our attitude? Tonight I'm talking about the essentials of a free grace perspective. Uh, basically speaking, what is the message that holds us together? What are the essentials that we can agree on? Lord knows there's things we disagree on. What are the things that we can agree on? What is the real essential message that is called the Free Grace Message? The Free Grace Alliance, I, don't get me wrong, is not, I could say, not a theological organization. That would be wrong. But not only a theological organization. We are, at heart, a missional organization. But we can't be an abstract, nebulous missional organization. We have to have a theological basis. We have to have a theological uh, core of truth. I think some of us in our naive, naivete, when we began the Free Grace Alliance, assumed that we kind of all agreed on a lot of things, and we're ironing a lot of these things out, and it's both fun and exhilarating and sometimes frustrating um, to, to find out so many differences, but still, you're here tonight, and you're here more than last year, and uh, our numbers are growing, and the message is going forward, and we realize that there is an essential core to our message. Our message is really very simple when you think about it, when you think about a free grace perspective. Our message is very, very simple, isn't it? Grace is free. That's what we want to proclaim to people. That's what we started out telling people. As we proclaimed that message and had our discussions and our, our meetings and our conferences and our interaction, we found out that, well, you know, people hold different views within that. For example, there's some that say, well, when we talk about faith, which is such a core component of the gospel, they say, well, faith is a mental, simply mental assent. And then there's others who disagree, and they say, well, faith also involves the will. And then there's some who would say, well, you really can't psychologize faith because the Bible doesn't seem to do that. So we have these different perspectives represented. You know that another uh, topic of discussion has been the issue of repentance. There are those within the free grace movement who say that repentance is a change of mind, very uh, longstanding traditional uh, perspective on it. There's others who say that uh, repentance means always to turn from sins. And there are others who say repentance has uh, a crucial part in salvation, and you can overlap it with the concept of faith and salvation. There are others who, who say uh, repentance is non-salvific. Uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. There are others that we get into the discussion of rewards because accountability is a big part of the free grace message. And there are those who say that rewards are distributed and, and maybe over and done with at the Bema seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ. And there's others who want to talk about uh, ramifications that go on at the millennium and even beyond. And that's been uh, grounds for discussion and some disagreement. 
we, we talk about eternal life and salvation and that the promise for eternal salvation is eternal life. And there's some who say, well, salvation uh, really involves the guarantee of eternal security as well. And we, we go down that road of discussion. There are some who, I actually talked to somebody in the free grace movement not long ago who I was surprised to find was a five-point Calvinist. And, um, and yet he, he held very strongly to the free grace message and was there for our free grace conference. There are some who claim to be four-point four Calvinists. You know that there are some who claim to be three-point Calvinists within the movement. Some who claim to be two-point Calvinists in the movement. There are some who would say that they're one-point Calvinists, and at least one I know would say he's a no-point Calvinist. And the tricky thing here is that uh, I guess if we did mat a mathematical equation, we would just square the number of possibilities because one that holds to one view of faith might hold to another view of repentance, another would hold the same view of faith, but another view of repentance. And so what happens is you have all these interacting ideas, and by the time we're finished doing all the calculations, we find out that in a room like this, none of us agree on everything. Am I right? I happen to know that there are some free grace people who are voting for McCain and some who are voting for Obama. And my point is, is that there's a lot of things that we can talk about and discuss, a lot of things that we can disagree on, a lot of differences represented in this room. But we want to talk about what are the free grace affirmations uh, that represent the core of what we believe. Now, I, I give this kind of talk in a lot of conferences, a lot of churches. I might have done it in your church, the essentials of a free grace view. And I usually approach it in a different way. And as I thought it, about it this evening and what I was going to do and who I was going to talk to, I said, well, you know what? The FGA has basically tried to do that. We've tried to summarize what is this, the essence of a free grace perspective, and that's what we, can we rally around. And why not just go through the affirmations that we have, and let's point out a few things that uh, we can agree on and some of the things that are up for discussion. So that's what I did. A little bit of a different approach. Our first affirmation says that the grace of God and justification is an unconditional gift. Um, the grace of God, that's where we start. Uh, your definition is probably the same as mine. That grace is essentially a free gift. You understand, as I do, that God is the source of grace. 1 Peter 5.10 talks about the God of all grace. Seems like a very elementary point to make. But to me, it affects my, my theology and my ethic of grace. The thing I like about grace is it's not just a theological word. It's also an ethical word. See, love is just an ethical word. You really don't have a theology of love so much. Now, grace theology is what brings us together. But it's the grace ethic also. God is a God of grace because he's the God of love. Grace is how he expresses his love. The Old Testament word for grace is to stoop, a God who stoops to help his people. It's love in action. We have to remember when we talk about grace that God is a God of all grace. It is his idea. It's his expression of love to mankind. It's not just a theology. God didn't give us a theology. He gave us an ethic as well. So he's the God of all grace. And when we go through the scriptures, we understand grace as the unconditional free gift of God given to undeserving sinners. That's what we talk about when we talk about grace and salvation. You might nuance it a little bit differently, but I don't think there's anything to disagree about there when we talk about the grace of God. The grace of God and justification is an unconditional free gift. The word grace, of course, comes from the idea, uh, the word gift itself. 
and we understand it to be a free gift. Romans 3.24 is a verse that we have kind of camped on at the FGA, and, and frankly, uh, uh, one of my favorite passages, being justified freely by His grace, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. After three and a half chapters of uh, telling the Romans how lost they were in sin, he then declares that God has now revealed his righteousness through the gospel. But they cannot be saved through the law or their own efforts, but it is freely by his grace. And our immediate observation is that if grace means a free gift, why does Paul say freely by his grace? He's being redundant. He's emphasizing. We know that as Bible students. He's making an emphasis here. And it's free by his grace because it, the price has been paid through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The grace of God in justification is an unconditional free gift. Now, our understanding of grace, I would assume, knows that unconditional means a lot of things. Um, it means that there are no works attached to it at all, no human merit. Romans 11.6 couldn't be any clearer. And if by grace, and it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. This passage clearly puts them different ends, mutually exclusive. Round cannot be square, or wet cannot be dry. Grace cannot be works, works cannot be grace. It can't be any clearer than that. So when we say unconditional grace, we mean that there's nothing attached to it that merits or deserves it, which totally absolutely should humble us. Now, our second affirmation, the sole means of receiving the free gift of eternal life is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose substitutionary death on the cross fully satisfied the requirement of our justification. The word faith is very crucial to our message, and we talk about it a lot, discuss it a lot. Um, so let's talk about it a little bit. We go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, very familiar passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith shows us that faith is not uh, the effective cause, it is the instrumental cause, it is the means by which we are able to access God's grace. So technically we're not saved by grace, technically we're saved through grace, if we want to make that little bit of a distinction, although we forgive the language differences we sometimes use. So it is through faith, and we need to say, what is faith then? Well, my understanding of faith is it's being persuaded that something is absolutely true. You may have a different, different definition of faith. Uh, our statement says that uh, it being uses the word persuaded in it. Um, the most important thing is what faith is not. And I think we agree that faith is not works. It is not obedience. It is not commitment. It is not surrender. Those are the terms. Those are the conditions that get us in trouble when we talk about the freeness of the gospel. Romans 4, 4 through 5, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Not the one who works, but the one who believes on him. His faith is counted for righteousness. Now, we know another word that's closely associated with faith and the concept of grace is the idea of repentance. Because if we don't understand repentance correctly, whatever that means, then we can compromise the idea of free grace. So let's talk about the relationship a little bit of faith and repentance within the free grace movement. Um, a long-held traditional view that uh, has come out of the free grace movement is that an explanation for repentance is that it is a change of mind. I personally prefer to use the change of heart because the word mind and heart are interchanged in the New Testament. 
And um, I don't see that the Bible makes a clear division between the two. And an interchange is what we could say. And what is the relationship to faith? Here's how I would, here's how I would explain it, and perhaps some of you. If faith is being persuaded that something is true, if I am not persuaded one moment and I am persuaded the next moment, then I've changed my mind. If I didn't think I needed to be saved and I, now I think I need to be saved, I've changed my mind. I've changed my heart. If I didn't think I was a sinner that was going to hell and suddenly I realize I'm a sinner going to hell, I've changed my mind. I've changed my heart. I've repented. We know that all repentance doesn't lead to salvation, uh, and that's why the circle is bigger than the circle of faith. Repentance is a flexible term in my understanding and the way it is used, and its object always has to be defined by the context. The object is not always sin in my understanding. Uh, God even repents in the Septuagint, uh, the translation of the Old Testament. God repents some 36 times or 26 times. Uh, he can change his mind too. It depends on the context about the object of that repentance. That's my understanding. I've always held that particular view, and I know many of you do. There is another view of repentance. Uh, I, I call it the harmony of God, with God view, and I think this, this view uh, could be stated as it has nothing to do with salvation. It is always a repentance from sin, the way I understand it. Unbelievers, it is for unbelievers as a pre-evangelistic type of preparation for the gospel, or it is repentance of believers to maintain their fellowship with God. I personally don't hold that view. I've studied it and don't hold it. Some of you do, and I respect that. And I respect it because it's, it's consistent with the grace gospel. And I, and I appreciate the this, this scholarship and the, the Bible study that goes behind that particular view. This is an area where free grace people sometimes disagree. It's a good place for discussion. I would love somebody to, to discuss this with me. And I've been in many of those discussions. I would love somebody to uh, uh, sharpen my views or perhaps vice versa. But the important thing is really what we know repentance is not. It does not mean that a person is saved by turning away from sin. Because once we say that, we then compromise free grace. And we can all agree that we can't compromise free grace by defining repentance as turning away from individual sins. Because that just packs so many problems into it. Now, we have another issue with the free grace movement that really has uh, caused us to sharpen a lot of our beliefs. And this is uh, also where it overlaps with the idea of faith. And, uh, and repentance as well. So many things are brought into this issue of the Lordship Salvation controversy. Lordship Salvation, as most of you would know, is the view that says faith includes surrender and commitment to Jesus Christ as master of one's life. So you see, their definition of faith is essentially different. Not simply being persuaded of something, but it includes a conscious surrender and commitment up front of one's life. And we've spent a lot of time talking about this view in our circles, I think. They take a verse like Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And uh, the Lordship Salvation version would read, believe in or submit to the Lord or the rulership of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now we might say that that's a rather complicated presentation to a jailer who's asking a very simple question who is a pagan and un, unregenerate, to understand what it means to submit to the Lord and the rulership of him, which seems a little bit arbitrary because Lord referring to deity would include many other aspects besides rulership. It would include his creatorship, his sovereignty. It would include his, uh, we could probably argue, his priesthood, his uh, uh, kingship, and, and all these other things. And but 
they camp on the issue of rulership when that is not the primary meaning of Lord. But we don't want to get into countering all of their arguments today. Just simply put and summarized, Lordship salvation, we know, adds to faith as the only condition. Because if we say faith includes commitment and surrender, we're suddenly adding to the concept of faith being a simple persuasion of a truth. And it confuses justification and sanctification. This simple distinction is a life-changing distinction. I was talking to someone today, and they said when they realized the difference between justification and sanctification, it changed their life. That little distinction becomes a big difference, which makes all the difference. And, but it's as crucial to this discussion, it's crucial to our understanding of the gospel, that the gospel is free to those who are unsaved and demands that Jesus makes are for those who are saved, the demands of sanctification, discipleship. So it confuses salvation and discipleship. Whereas the Lordship gospel likes to take the demands in the gospels that Jesus makes of his disciples and, and say that the gospel according to Jesus is deny yourself and take up your cross and, and follow me and love me more than your father, mother, brother, sister, um, forsake everything. We understand these as a challenge to us as Christians to live the Christian life. And then, of course, the result of Lordship salvation, as I have seen so many times, too many times in my ministry and experience, is that it makes assurance of salvation impossible. Because who can fulfill these commitments? Who can know that they fulfilled these commitments? How can we know these things for sure? So Lordship salvation has done a lot of damage to people, and thus that gives us a little bit of fuel in the free grace movement to do what we're doing. Another affirmation that we have is faith is a personal response apart from our works, whereby we are persuaded that the finished work of Jesus Christ has delivered us from condemnation and guaranteed our eternal life. Let's look at this a little bit more closely. We say that faith is a personal response. I don't know if you would say it exactly that way, but I think that uh, what we understand by that is this. When we look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I think most of us probably agree, most people I know agree, that faith is not a gift of God in this passage. In fact, most commentators who are not part of our camp, or, or maybe any particular camp, agree. Most of the commentators seem to know that the, the Greek language, it's a neuter reference, and the neuter reference couldn't refer to faith, which would be a feminine reference in the original language. So what's being spoken of here is the gift of God, is this idea of salvation by grace through faith. That's an important distinction to make because the argument goes that if faith is a, a divine endowment or bestowment or a divine dynamic, it's been called, or a divine energy, all these different terms that, we read, that I read in opposite views, contrary views, then suddenly faith is, uh, has to produce works and has to be seen, and what God has given as a divine energy is going to show itself in inevitable and quantifiable fruit. And that becomes a problem for us then. Um, not only is it support, not supported by the scriptures, but it, it means that works are suddenly essential to the gospel message and the message of grace, salvation by grace through faith. So it's a personal response. I think that some of this comes from our understanding of what it means to be totally depraved. My understanding of total depravity is not that, God, that we have completely lost any ability to believe, but that the image of God in us has been marred, but we are still responsible to believe. And of course, God is doing his work in us to bring us to that point. I'm not going to dismiss that. But still, we can believe in Jesus Christ, just like we could believe in Buddha. The difference is not the faith or the kind of faith. The difference is the object of our faith and what we're putting trust in. 
Let's look at the, a little further at this affirmation. Apart from our works, I think we would all say amen to that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is clear enough. And it's not by anything that we do. Works is very essential in the, our um, definition and um, our understanding of what the free grace gospel is. And uh, works cannot be front-loaded to the gospel, as mentioned earlier today. And this is what these views want to do when they talk about faith being commitment and surrender, is putting it up front in, in hopes that if we get someone to commit up front, then they'll carry through and live a holy Christian life. It can't be front-loaded as obedience or as commitment or as merit of any kind. Work, surrender, or making a promise or a deal with God. Neither can it be backloaded to the Christian life, which is what we're also dealing with and, and uh, countering in a lot of our uh, uh, discussions with uh, those of contrary view. They, they say, well, you have to have works as proof. You're sure you're saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. And uh, Fred Lybrand has written an excellent work showing the Ill illogical and uh, uh, biblical inaccuracy of that statement. And I hope that work comes out soon for your reading pleasure. But the point is, is that it necessarily adds works to our understanding of faith. Likewise, the uh, uh, understanding that those who have believed will persevere in the faith does the same thing. If a person doesn't persevere, if they don't have the works to show at the end of their lives, then they never really were saved to begin with. Thus, salvation, thus faith, is defined by what we do, not by what we are persuaded of. The works cannot be front-loaded or back-loaded to the gospel. Let's look at the third element of that statement. We said that faith is a personal response, and it's apart from works, whereby we are persuaded that. If faith is being persuaded that something is true, then what is it that is true? We drafted this statement, that the finished work of Jesus Christ has delivered us from condemnation and guaranteed our eternal life. When we first drafted this statement, I believe, as I've always believed, that the gospel is that uh, involves the finished work of Jesus Christ, which means that there is a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that what he did was he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead. But say, believing that and that only would not save anyone because he has made a promise since he is a living Savior. And that promise is to me and to you that if you accept his gift of eternal life or believe him for that gift of eternal life, you will be saved. So we are persuaded that there is a gospel and that that gospel has some content to it. This has been an area of discussion, I know. Uh, I can't answer all the questions about understanding what a person would understand, we would, under, we would perhaps discuss some of the different nuances of that content. Uh, but that is what I, I think the drafters of our statement intended when we wrote it. Now, the free grace message then leads us to a position where grace has to lead us that our, our salvation is eternally secure. It's not on a performance basis, which is where every other gospel leaves you. My friends, every other gospel leaves you. Every other religion leaves you on a performance basis. The gospel of God's free grace is the only position whereby we can say, I know for certain that I will be with Christ forever. It's not on a performance basis. It is, it is only by grace. Our next affirmation is justification is the act of God to declare us righteous when we believe in Jesus Christ alone. 
This is, of course, justification is an important concept, not only to the free grace movement, but to the Reformation and, and to our understanding of all, all the scriptures. We understand, I think, that God, that justification is when God declares us righteous. It is a forensic or legal declaration of our new position in him, whereby we are no longer guilty of our sins, but our guilt is we have been freed from that guilt. We have been declared not guilty by God. Now, the distinction and the importance that we want to emphasize is that it is not. Righteousness is justification. is not that God makes us right. Because then we go into a Roman Catholic gospel. We go into so many other versions of the gospel that confuse justification and sanctification. I think our understanding would probably be in agreement in this room about what justification is. I'm pretty sure about that. Our next affirmation is that assurance of justification is the birthright of every believer from the moment of faith in Jesus Christ and is founded upon the testimony of God in his written word. Because we are secure in an objective sense, then subjectively we can have assurance. And so assurance is the subjective realization of God's guarantee of eternal salvation. And unlike our eternal security, assurance can be lost. Now we say that assurance is the birthright of every believer. I would probably tend to prefer to say that assurance is the reality of every believer, but there is some discussion here. It's certainly the birthright of every believer. And I tend to think if a person believes and they, they know that they've believed and they know that they're going to have eternal life, at least for a moment, but it can be lost. And we all agree with that. So assurance of justification is the birthright of every believer, and then it is founded upon the testimony of God and his written word. Assurance is based on God's word, on his promise. It is not based on our performance and not our perseverance in good works. Our sixth affirmation says that spiritual growth, which is distinct from justification, is God's expectation for every believer in this growth, however, is not necessarily manifested uniformly in every believer. So now we address issues of the Christian life, and we know that we have discussions and differences there, but the main distinction that I think we all make is that there is a difference between justification and sanctification. We draw that distinction very clearly, whereas justification speaks about our birth into the family of God, sanctification speaks about our growth in the family, whereas justification speaks about our initial salvation, uh, the sanctification speaks of our ongoing progressive discipleship, whereas justification speaks of our initial faith in the promise of God and the work of God through Jesus Christ. Sanctification speaks of the obedience that he now expects of us, requires of us, asks of us, and demands of us. Justification is a single condition. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification has many conditions. Like take up your cross, deny yourself, uh, pay your taxes. How many are there? Justification is an instantaneous event. Sanctification is a lifetime process. I think that you and I are here because we understand the distinction between justification and sanctification. And we say that it is God's expectation for every believer. When we read Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's purpose for us in his son, Jesus Christ, is for us to live a life of good works. It is not just to give us a ticket to heaven so we can bide our time until we are whisked away to be with him. But he has created us for good works. It is his expectation for us. So we do think that works are very important, very important for the Christian. 
but we don't think that they are necessarily manifested uniformly in every believer. And I think this kind of a statement keeps us uh, from the dangers of judging one another's works, judging one another's salvation based on their works, and becoming, frankly, legalists who look to measure by whatever standard or comparisons they settle on, measure the salvation of others is not necessarily manifested uniformly in every believer. Every pastor says amen to that. You see people growing faster uh, than others in your churches. And I think everyone agrees that that's true. In fact, we all know that there are some people who can even uh, persist in a pretty, pretty carnal lifestyle. And there are some who can even die in that lifestyle, as the scriptures tell us. I think that there is a scripture under death. We recognize that. We know that there are people like the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 11.30 who, uh, abusing the Lord's Supper, had fallen sick and even died. So there is a danger in measuring uh, good works, measuring salvation by our good works. And this is a difference that we have with so many other views uh, that put an emphasis on works as evidence of faith or proof of faith. And here's why I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't think works can be determinative of our, of our salvation because good works can characterize non-Christians. Buddhists are full of good works. Many Muslims are full of good works. The Mormons are full of good works. And as we go on, we say, see, good works can be hard to define anyway. What is a good work? You know, a lot of the things that we think are good works might just get burned up with the judgment seat of Christ. And we discover that they're not good works. We have a problem with good works being relative. We're talking here perhaps about the progress of growth in somebody's life how fast somebody lays, lays aside an old habit or picks up a new habit in the Christian life, you know? Um, wouldn't it be nice to go up to somebody and say, man, I'm really proud of you. You're really growing in Christ. You only, you only drank one-fifth of whiskey this week because he drank six-fifths last week. That's a different view of sanctification, isn't it? Did he grow or not? Too sober. Good works can be passive in nature. You know, we want to always just talk about works as the things that we do. We pray, we read the Bible, we do this. What about the things we don't do? How do you know what a person is not doing? How do you know when a person says no to temptation? Would that be a good work that we don't see? Good works can be unseen. A person can pray before they go to bed. Who are we to know or say or judge what they have done? A person can read the Bible. or, or before they go to bed. A person can be a little kinder to someone. We would never know it. Where does that leave us? Well, good works overall can be deceptive. They're not a good determination of uh, proof of faith. It's, we can use them as a, an evidence, as a supporting evidence in some cases, I think. It's obvious when a person's life is changed, uh, but it can never prove anything. In the end, good works can be deceptive because motives can be deceptive. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 said, I don't even judge myself. I'm just going to have to wait to that day when God reveals everything and let him be the judge. If I can't judge myself, then how can you judge me? We have to leave that to God. So how can anybody, based on good works, say that somebody is saved or not? I think it's impossible. Now, there may be some disagreement here or nuance in that discussion, but I think that represents pretty much our perspective in the free grace movement about the role of good works. Good works can be inconsistent. This is when someone who can have a good day, can have a bad day, and on that bad day, perhaps get in a car accident. What do we say about that person? 
I don't think good works improve salvation. Our last affirmation is that the gospel of grace should always be presented with such clarity and simplicity that no impression is left that justification requires any step, response, or action in addition to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think with this affirmation, we're trying to say from the Free Grace Alliance and in the Free Grace Movement that the gospel of grace is simple and needs to be presented simply and as clearly as possible. Clarity means that we avoid confusing language. Uh, it's faith alone. It's not works and obedience in any way. We don't want to give any impression that it involves commitment or surrender or repentance from individual sins. You can't be saved until you stop doing this or that. That it involves a public confession of any kind. You can only be saved if you walk an aisle or tell somebody or some would say live a right lifestyle. It does not is not um, conditional upon being baptized, although baptism is a good thing and a witness to our salvation. And it, it is faith alone, not faithfulness, not an ongoing Christian lifestyle uh, as part that gets us saved. So our gospel is clear and simple, faith alone. We close with a covenant that perhaps is not theological in nature, but I don't frankly see how we can have uh, any kind of theological statement and have any kind of free grace alliance without this commitment. We say in agreement with these affirmations, we covenant together graciously and enthusiastically to advance this gospel of grace and to communicate with a positive and gracious tone toward all others, both inside and outside the free grace alliance. I would think it essential to any free grace message that we act graciously and share it graciously to one another. We can so easily undo with our words or actions what we profess to believe in our writing, in our preaching, and in our teaching. So we covenant to work together graciously. That's what an alliance is. We're, we're working together. My idea of graciousness is to give people some freedom, freedom to think, freedom to be a little different from me. Now, I've already explained what we have in common. Within that commonality, there are differences, differences of opinion about different things, differences that give us very, very good, fertile ground for discussion, some good, fun, uh, exhilarating, vibrant discussions. The graciousness, the graciousness that God gives to us is the ability to turn away from him at any time and become a prodigal son. The same grace that welcomed the son back is the grace that let him go. And in our churches, I know as a pastor, I so much wanted my people to be like me and to think like me and to walk like me and to talk like me and to smell like me and to dress like me. And I found that that was a stifling attitude to have as a pastor. It wasn't until I allowed people to be who they are and to be free to be who they are and to feel that freedom and the freedom to make a mistake. When we give birth to a child, we don't expect that child to stand up and run a 100-yard dash. We know that that child's going to stumble and fall and scrape his her knees. And we know that that, that child is going to have, um, make a lot of mistakes in the process of learning to grow. Is God's view of sanctification, is our Heavenly Father any different, do you think? Does he not know that you and I and those whom we lead to Christ are going to stumble and fall and make mistakes and, and struggle to form our views and our theology and our beliefs about him and his gospel? So graciousness to the grace movement means that we give people room enough within our core beliefs 
to discuss some of these things in a gracious way, to disagree, and yet respect one another and love one another at the end of the day. And that means that we have a gracious tone in our discussions, and the words that we use and the words that we choose, to those both inside and outside the Free Grace Alliance. Frankly, some of the discussions that uh, I've heard inside the grace movement have not, not been too friendly. And I've been disappointed that there are some people who say, well, I just don't think I want to sign up right now because I've seen how some people are talking to each other. And then how we address people outside the Free Grace Alliance. Those of other persuasions, perhaps like the Lordship Salvation view is very important. Because those, those views are presented before the Christian world for their examination and judgment. What I am excited about with the grace movement is not just the theology of the grace movement, but when God gave us the gospel of grace, he didn't just give us a theology, he gave us a gospel. You know what gospel means. Gospel means good news. And you know what you do with good news. You don't argue about it. You share it. And while I am, I am a Bible student at heart, and a, um, I love a good theological discussion, a good theological debate, what really pushes my buttons is sharing the gospel of grace with others. What I really get excited about is seeing people freed from sin and Satan and deception and guilt and condemnation. Freedom means a lot to me. I, I think freedom is one of my chief values. Maybe if I had to list my values in order, freedom would be at the top if I were to confess to you. In fact, when I look at something like the, the political discussions that are going on and who I'm going to vote for, one of my primary considerations is uh, who is really for freedom and who wants to take my freedom away? And, and that's where I tend to, to judge candidates by. And, and I think that God, the part of the gospel that we probably need to appreciate more is the freedom that it brings, the glorious liberty of the sons of God. My son has been, uh, for one of his assignments, which is now over, he's been memorizing the Declaration of Independence and practicing it on us. And so I have uh, listened to him to uh, be a sounding board and a correcting agent, but, but it's been a while since I've read the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, what makes America different from every other nation is this, freedom. But isn't it interesting the words that our founding fathers chose? First of all, they, they recognized that that freedom was from the creator as a Christian value system. Then they chose the words life. Now, they were speaking of life, well, certainly a political level and a human level, I think. But what do we offer as a Free Grace Alliance? We offer eternal life. What do we offer in the grace message, the gospel, eternal life? Liberty. Now, they were thinking of liberty in a political sense. King George was in the back of their minds or the forefront of their minds. They were thinking liberty in that sense. But what do we offer people? We offer them liberty from condemnation and sin and Satan or the enslaving lifestyles that they have. And then they said the pursuit of happiness. And of course, they meant the right to, to pursue a living and to have a family and to raise uh, their, 
their, just the freedom of living in a free country. But what do we offer people in the good news? It's a life of joy, of happiness, and fellowship with God. Not a life, not a life free of struggle, but a life full of joy. So freedom has become, for me, a very high priority political value, but I've come to appreciate it more and more in the gospel of grace. I come to appreciate it when I, when I speak to pastors, when I speak to people in the United States, and they say, you know, when I, when I understood the grace message, it was like I was born again all over again, and I was freed from a lifetime of insecurity. I've never known for sure I've, I've been saved. My friends, doesn't that get you excited? What I get excited about is going to India with my friend Daniel and watch him teach 800 pastors in the free grace gospel there and see these pastors rise and spontaneously give a round of applause because they have understood eternal security for the first time in their lives and testify to me afterwards that I've never been sure. I've, I've lived in fear and insecurity all of my life. What I get excited about is going to Ghana and teaching pastors the same message and watch them literally pop out of their seats with a big smile on their face. Or, or I get excited about my friend Anisette Endicurio in the little country of Burundi who emails me out of nowhere and says, I came across your website. I'm living in the Old Testament here. Everybody's preaching law, and it is so good to, to see grace. And I want to know more about this message. And I couldn't afford to go to Burundi, but I was having a conference in Ghana, so we paid to flew him to Ghana. And we trained him there at the pastor's conference, and he went back to Burundi, and now he's got 20 free grace churches in that little country of Burundi, the only grace churches perhaps ever there. What I get excited about is a similar email from nowhere from a, a guy named Raheel Shaquille in Pakistan who says, there's nobody here who is teaching grace. Everybody's teaching law and works. And he says, can we get some of your literature? And some of you guys have sent your literature there, and he has translated that, and he has a string of about... I don't know how many churches, because Ron was just there. I don't know how many churches he's got. And uh, he's the only circuit or collection of free grace churches in the country of Pakistan right now, in a country that has very few Christians to begin with. That's what I get excited about. Freedom is a high priority to me. Um, I am only two generations away from slavery. Let me explain that. My grandfather came over uh, and worked on the railroads as uh, a Chinese laborer. Uh, you don't know the history of the Chinese people because we are called the silent minority. We don't talk about it a lot. We don't complain. We just work hard. He came over and worked on the railroad, and I've done a lot of reading about the circumstances of that. What they did is the Americans or Chinese merchants went over and made big promises to the Chinese poor people in the in the rural areas and brought them over here, and they were virtually enslaved to their jobs because they were kept in debt. Somehow, somewhere, my grandfather broke free of all that and, and made his way across the country and opened up a Chinese restaurant in Washington, D.C. He met my grandmother. My grandmother was born in China, a, a country that didn't value its female population. In the poor country, they sold the girls, so she was sold at the age of about 10. And she was sold to a rich Chinese-American man who brought her over here and uh, abused her um, physically and sexually. At the age of 13, she was pregnant. She didn't know what pregnant was. And uh, that baby died, but she then uh, had my father. She, she was sold to another uh, Chinese-American man as his concubine and servant. And uh, she was also abused by him until she ran away at the age of 17. And then, um, <clears throat> 
as a, a her husband left her and went back to uh, China. So I've never met my grandfather, but my grandmother uh, was invited to a, a Bible study in a Baptist church in Washington, D.C. And there, a missionary who spoke her language, but she didn't have a good uh, grasp of the English language, shared the gospel with her. And not only was she physically free, now she was spiritually free. I'm convinced that because of her prayers uh, and her spiritual legacy, I'm here today. What I'm saying to you is that freedom means a lot to me. I don't blame America. I don't need an apology for America. I'm <clears throat> privileged to be here and to live in a free country. But what I'm trying to really say today is, is, not, is not about uh, social political freedom. It's about spiritual freedom. What that means to me on, on my personal level is what it means to countless people around the world on the spiritual level who are in bondage in fear to their idols and their gods or their atheism and their gloom and their darkness, who don't know where tomorrow goes or where eternity leads. And these people can be liberated by the message that we have. And we can do it more effectively than any other, not in a proud way that we have the gospel right, but in a humble way that God has given us this message. And while we, we protect it and defend it with one hand, with a sword, we go out with a trowel and we build and we work with the other hand. And I'm excited about people like Bob that go to the Philippines and win tens of thousands of people to Christ with that message every summer and all year long in other countries now. I'm excited about what the grace message is. I'm excited about you being here. Our purpose is to advance the grace message around the world, not to argue about it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace@gracelife.org. See you next time.